Book Choice is brought to you by Exclusive Books, celebrating getting more books to more people. Welcome to Book Choice on Fine Music Radio, sponsored by Exclusive Books, with me, your host, Paige Nick. We've got a chock-a-block show planned for you today as we start to see out the end of what most South Africans fondly refer to as January. But no need to worry, we have more than enough books to keep you entertained and keep your mind off the end-of-the-month blues and what feels like stage one billion load shedding. So pull out your camping torch so you can keep on reading, even in the dark. And let's get to the books. Here's a quick rundown of our lineup. We start with Shirley Guella and a book called The Deo of Daniel by Ludovic Duplessis. We're then joined by Beverly Ruiz Miller, chatting about not one, but two new Cormac McCarthy novels. Then Anthony Frijan introduces us to a coffee table book called Remembering Bears, featuring 85 of the world's leading photographers, and a bunch of bears. After that, and a bit of music, Twanji Kalula has reviews of two current non-fiction titles, Hunting the Dragon by Ian Buchan, and Blood and Silver, which is a memoir by Jan Glazuski. And then we wrap up with wonderful Vanessa Levenstein, who interviewed Dennis Herson on his new memoir called My 32nd Bar Mitzvah. So stay tuned. As I said, we've got all your book needs covered, if you'll pardon the pun. We're starting the show with a review of a book I've seen put up front and center in a few exclusive bookstores already this month. And I've been quite curious about this book. It's called The Deo of Daniel, which I find quite a compelling title, don't you? It's by Lodovic Duplessis, and the English translation is by Michiel Haynes. While I've never read a Lodovic Duplessis book before, I am a huge fan of all Michiel Haynes' work. He is for sure one of our most talented translators and award-winning authors. And while I'm keen to hear about this book he's translated, I also can't help thinking that I hope his work translating this book hasn't held up any new offering from Michiel Haynes. So back to the book at hand, The Deo of Daniel. Shirley Guella joins us to tell us all about it. Sometimes I have a problem with the jargon publishers use on the back cover of a book, simply for the hyperbole it often is. But in this case, I can't fault what they write. There is no other character like Daniel van der Velt, and there is no other novel like The Tao of Daniel. Words fail me. There must be hundreds to describe the poetry and pertinent common sense of his writing, the evocative descriptions, imagination, ruminations, observations, depths of discovery of language and knowledge, and of course, Michiel Haynes' superb translation. But I am so much in awe of the book that words really do fail me. We all know the backstory. Lodovic G. Duplessis, later unmasked as Judge Andres Bass, a few years ago published the Afrikaans version, which has already won six major prizes, including the Helgard Stein Prize. The English translation was released in December at a launch at Exclusive Books, where Bass was interviewed by author Tan Tuan N. One embarks on Daniel's journey, his own Camino, in a manner of speaking, the Dao, Chinese for way of life. One is torn between like and dislike of Daniel, called Dani O in China, which she visits with his Chinese friend, the colorful widow of an Afrikaner who is fighting her own demons from what she did in the Cultural Revolution. One is also torn between compassion and disdain, as Daniel reveals himself, warts and all, in a series of letters to his late wife, handwritten because, as he says, it wasn't appropriate to use Microsoft Word to write letters to a departed soul in the hereafter. These confessions, apologies, what you will, are interspersed with others to his equally late dog, Kaspas. 
and most were written from a monk's minimalist cell in China, where Daniel finds discomfort before comfort in a society that reveres the old, but expects him to master Tai Chi and more. How Daniel questions everything and comes to terms with who he was, who he is, and where he is going is the crux of this complex, yet amazingly accessible novel, which grips you from the opening words to the final, surprising for me, paragraph. It's funny, it is wry, sad, profound, gorgeously layered, and at all times it could be about the everyman archetype. I am truly in awe of the author's observations and his metaphors, and his knowledge from Greek mythology and philosophy to Chinese culture, history, Latin, and the Bible, with everything in between. He has a succinct summing up of the salt of the earth folk around the Karua farm, where traditions and primogenitor alienate his son, and also bring home to us, the reader, the current rural crime situation. The Ages book is also a sort of social history from reminding readers of Springbok Radio and its shows and the Cook Sisters and Meat and Potatoes diet of the diehards. He tells you of the magazines in the doctor's waiting room. There was no Lantbeau Werkblatt for the men of the soil because men die before they get to the doctor, but Sari was there for their wives. He immediately sets a scene in airports in China where 10,000 people are in passport queues rather like blowflies around a carcass or points out a truism that luggage occupies seats in the departure area. I am in awe of how the author gets around so many complications and makes them all fall into place. The relationship with his son, his quest for self-knowledge through exploration of sexuality, Christianity, and then through the ways of the Chinese masters. And I am delighted to find that his was always a life worth living, from advocate to farmer and as a self-confessed failed husband, father, and friend. Sometimes you read a sentence twice, not because you don't understand it, but because it resonates so perfectly. Takes this. I'm scared of heights, and I worry about how I will get to heaven at the end of my life. Every word seems to have been selected with care, but nothing is contrived. Young boys convicted of consensual sex in times gone by may have been hanged, but it's not only the horror of the punishment that gets you, but the way he sums it up. The law had been consummated. And then some wry observations that'll make you laugh. God isn't dead, Kaspas. He's been driven from the church by an unholy racket. And... I do hope that you are not in the arms of Jesus along with a whole bunch of men, he tells his late wife, Margrethe. We don't want trouble when I turn up there. And Castrati, he says, that only a man who has made the ultimate sacrifice could sound so sorrowful. There is so much in this book that I know I will want to read it again. So no, don't ask if you can borrow it. Get your own copy. Thank you, Shirley. And now we turn to Beverly Rose Miller. I have been very much looking forward to this review, Beverly. Cormac McCarthy has to be one of the greatest writers of our time. I remember reading his book, The Road, in one sitting. I picked it up one evening, never having heard anything about it, and I closed it at 5 a.m. the next morning, my eyes wide, my heart racing, and I've never stopped coming back to that book in my mind over the years since. McCarthy has had numerous bestsellers since he brought out his first book in 1965, including All the Pretty Horses and No Country for Old Men, but he has kept us waiting extra long for something new, as his last book, which was The Road, came out way back in 2006. But he's rewarded his fans for their patience by launching not one, but two books this year. The Passenger and Stella Maris are two interconnected but also standalone novels by Cormac McCarthy. I haven't read them yet, but they're on my to-read pile, so as I said, I've been very interested in Beverly Ruiz Miller's take on these two new novels, by this now 86-year-old genius. Over to you, Bev. 
There's the best and then there's the rest. And author Cormac McCarthy is right at the top of the heap. After a break of 15 years, the American author has produced not just one but two books, a couplet titled The Passenger and Stella Maris. After No Country for Old Men, I didn't think he could surpass himself, but he has done so now, aged 89. They are astounding. They are demanding. They are works of supreme capacity and beauty, if you have the stamina. And also, no, virtually no punctuation, which is part of his unique writing style. I like it as it improves the flow, though it does drive the language police mental. The passenger rests on a riddle. Bobby Weston is zipped into his wetsuit and with his diving buddy plunges into the dark ocean where there is a sunken jet with nine bodies still buckled into their seats and according to the manifest, a tenth passenger who is missing. This seems impossible, but then menacing men with and without badges begin to track him. Weston and Alicia are the children of a father who worked on the Hiroshima bomb. Is their genius a legacy of his sin? Is such a question even valid? They are both brilliant offspring, though the younger Alicia is perhaps more so, an autistic savant whose facility for mathematics is less a gift than a curse. Greatly gifted people are frequently on the autistic scale, with its wide variations. Maybe, suggests a character in this book, the purpose of charity is not to protect the weak, but to preserve the mad. They get special treatment in some societies. It could be that part of our understanding of the world we live in comes, quote, in vessels incapable of sustaining themselves. Alicia was diagnosed as odd at the age of four and by 16 had completed both school and university and lives in a world of suicidal despair because of the inability to find anyone who can communicate adequately with her, and even more so because she was deeply, passionately, and irrevocably in love with her brother. He returned her love but was unable to overcome his resistance to its consummation, partly because of their genetic inheritance, even though, I should say, incest is fairly commonplace, and for her, suicide was then the obvious and only solution. Regarding the sometimes dubious pleasures of family, one of my favorite quotes is this one. But I will tell you, Squire, that having read even a few dozen books in common is a force more binding than blood. Weston's escape from his torment has taken the form of dangerous car racing, a dangerous diving job, and dangerous places to live in ice and isolation. He cannot run the feds or whoever were pursuing him for whatever reason he knew not, but there was no way he could outrun his exceptional sister. He knew that on the day of his death he would see her face and he could hope to carry that beauty into the darkness with him. What do you know of grief? asks Weston. You know nothing. There is no other loss. The world is ashes, ashes. But the book is also very funny in parts, although the needle needs to be alert as some of the puns and science jokes are quite quickly delivered. Some are easy to spot, such as, do you believe in an afterlife? I don't believe in this one. Or, do you think of yourself as an atheist? God no, those were the good old days. Alicia's discourses in the, in the shorter book, Stella Maris, the name meaning star of the sea, an institution into which she has checked herself. 
It is essentially the record of a long, virtually seamless conversation with a psychiatrist about incantations of mathematicians and physicists and their disagreements, whether or not maths is an original pre-language before speech or perhaps music. There's Einstein, of course, and Gödel and Wittgenstein and the Greek philosophers and mathematicians. But a rare weakness in this book is what is missing. For example, the self-taught Indian mathematical genius Ramanujan and the vast contribution made by the Muslim world to the world of numbers, not least our own numerical characters. It's a small quibble, but important for McCarthy reminds us that what is that which is not written down or recorded will soon not exist. Knowledge is as ephemeral as the jinn that Alicia hallucinates. A wise, cracking, smart ass without arms who fences with her in a clever and cheeky manner that the outside world cannot. As a sidebar, the wonderful neurologist Oliver Sacks reminds us in his book Hallucinations that we all hallucinate, or at least have the capacity to do so. What is real and what is not? Think of it this way. All the characters in these two stories, Alicia, Weston, the hallucinatory visitors, are measures on a scale of quantum. They are all either real and or imaginary. Their world was never yours, for what drives the tale will not survive the tale. Such writing has not been published for a long time. I recall reading Thomas Pynchon's Gravity's Rainbow on a train in Europe in my early 20s and thinking that the world was now a bigger place than the very continent I was moving across. These two are such books particularly The Passenger, and perhaps only a writer of the stature of McCarthy could have ensured their publication. It is a privilege and pleasure to have read them. And just a final question. Who was The Passenger? Is it me? I've been talking about Cormac McCarthy's books, The Passenger and Stella Maris. Saw me standing alone without a dream in my heart, without a love of my own. Blue moon, you knew just what I was there for. You heard me say in a prayer for.
You're tuned into Book Choice on Fine Music Radio, sponsored by Exclusive Books, with me, your host, Paige Nick. And that was Blue Moon by Lola G and the Riverboat Jazz Band. All the tracks in this month's Book Choice show have been selected by Rick Everett and compiled by Dave Wood. These two gentlemen supply us with the music for our book shows every month, and we couldn't be more grateful. So, onwards, from that music to some words and pictures. Anthony Frijon is here to tell us about a book called Remembering Bears. This is a coffee table book by Margot Raggett. Remembering Bears is the seventh book in the Remembering Wildlife charity series. The aim of the creators is to make the most beautiful photographic book ever seen on a species. And this one contains photographs taken by 85 of the world's leading photographers, including a few South Africans. Anthony, has it lived up to its aim? Let me tell you about Remembering Bears, a coffee table size book, 29 by 31 centimeters, published by Remembering Wildlife, distributed by HPH Publishing. Allow me to digress. Remembering teddy bears for most children, their first encounter with bears. What do I remember of teddy bears? Well, starting with A.A. Milne's Winnie the Pooh, I'm not sure where Goldilocks and the Three Bears, which was written in 1837, fits into my memory. Before or after Pooh, can't remember. In 1894, Rudyard Kipling's The Jungle Book introduced the reader to the sleepy brown bear Baloo. And of course... Paddington Bear, and that delightful moment, seen on TV, of him having tea with the late Queen on her jubilee. But where does the name Teddy fit in? President Theodore, Teddy Roosevelt, President of the United States, an avid outdoorsman and naturalist, was on a hunting trip. His obliging guide had a black bear tied to a tree for the President to shoot. He was astonished and refused to shoot it, exclaiming, that it would be unsportsmanlike. The Washington Post produced a cartoon showing Teddy Roosevelt refusing to shoot the bear. A Brooklyn shopkeeper whose wife used to make stuffed animals saw the cartoon, decided to make a stuffed bear which he named Teddy. And there we have it. Teddy. Teddy bears and the name has stuck for over a hundred years. Now from teddy bears to remembering bears Remembering Wildlife is the collective name for the series of books created by British wildlife photographer Margot Raggett, who, after seeing a poached elephant in 2014, decided something had to be done. She began asking fellow wildlife photographers if they would contribute to a fundraising book. Their response was unanimous. The series of books devoted to raising funds for conservation projects began with Remembering Elephants, followed by Remembering Rhinos, Great Apes, Lions, Cheetahs, African Wild Dogs, and now Remembering Bears, the latest in the series. To quote Margot Raggett, Our mission is to create the most beautiful books on a species ever made and then sell those books to raise awareness of the plight facing that species and funds to protect it. To date, this commendable project has raised nearly 19 million rand. The other part of the stated mission was to create the most beautiful books on a species. I haven't seen any of the previous books, but Remembering Bears is a most beautiful book. From the front cover, a polar bear looks you in the eye. On the back cover, two bear cubs playing, and in between, 
160 pages of outstanding shots of all eight species of bears. This is certainly a splendidly presented hardcover book on fine quality paper, and it follows that being a book about bears featuring photographs donated by 85 of the world's leading wildlife photographers, including five South Africans, it has to be good. Or oh, actually more than good, they're quite superb. As I mentioned earlier on, this is a coffee table sized book, 29 by 31 centimeters. The previous books were received with critical acclaim, and I have no doubt Remembering Bears will deservedly receive the same response. Bears can be found on every continent apart from Africa and Antarctica, and apart of the Ursidae family, not related to canines in spite of their dog-like appearance. There are extensive comments on all the bear species. American black bears, Andean bears, Asiatic black bears, brown bears, giant pandas, polar bears, and sloth bears. For each bear, there's a description of their range, habitat, lifespan, and major threats to their survival. Five of the species are listed as vulnerable by the International Union for Conservation of Nature. Due to loss of habitat, hunting and myriad reasons which all involve the constantly growing demands of a burgeoning human population. To our discredit, only two are listed as least concern, the brown bear and the American black bear. Remembering Bears is available at bookstores or directly from the local distributor HPH Publishing. 895 Rand might seem a lot to you, but you'll be supporting conservation projects and you'll have an exceptional book to display on your coffee table and the enjoyment of looking at these superb photographs over and over. Yeah. 
That was Moon River by Danny Williams. And since it came after Blue Moon, which was our last track, you can probably already guess the theme of all the music in today's show. Our next segment is an interview. Beryl Eichenberger met author Penny Hoare in the studio to chat about her new novel, The Invincible Miss Cust, which is based on the real life of Aileen Isabel Cust, who defied her family and society to become Britain and Ireland's first woman vet. Penny is carving out quite a niche for herself now in both historical fiction as well as books that feature animals and the natural world. Welcome to the show, Beryl and Penny. I think it's true to say it's easier to learn about historical figures through reading a fictionalised version of their lives than through the history books. The talent of the author is getting under the skin of the character with meticulous research and inspired storytelling. Often it is a little-known heroines and heroes who are brought to life and given the accolades and exposure they deserve. So it is with the invincible miscast by local author Penny Hoare. Here we meet a woman who was a trailblazer, the very first female veterinary surgeon in Britain and Ireland, and it is a riveting story. Aileen Cust realised her dreams through almost insurmountable odds in the late 1800s. But I've got Penny here, who's going to continue the story, and I'm always really delighted to be able to interview a local author who's making good. <laughs> Welcome, Penny. And I simply loved this book. It walked around the house with me so I could read as I went. And I am an animal lover. So it's very obvious that you love animals and the environment from your previous book, The Wilderness Between Us. But how did this story begin? Thanks, Beryl. It's lovely to be here. Yes, um, as you say, I love animals and I love I love the outdoors. And I um, grew up on a dairy farm in KwaZulu-Natal. And for a long time, I fantasized about being a veterinary surgeon myself. And I used to walk ar- um, across the fields with my dogs or I'd be riding my horse and I'd be telling myself these stories, kind of radio play style stories about how Penny the vet would rescue and um, save animals and uh, be the heroine of all the 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 creatures great and small (laughs) oh absolutely absolutely Um, and when I was looking for the subject um, of another book I imagined it would be contemporary fiction at that stage Um, after the wilderness between us I thought about writing about or setting my story in a veterinary practice and I mentioned it to my daughter-in-law and she has grown up in Namibia and she said to me what about a woman veterinary surgeon who has to face a lot of patriarchy in a rural environment and and you could lead it lead make that the story so I I thought that could work and I researched when women first became veterinary surgeons Mm -hmm. and honestly Beryl within half an hour I came across Aileen Cust who was as you said earlier the first woman veterinary surgeon in Britain and Ireland and I read a bit about her story and I was riveted (laughs) and I and I thought well somebody must have written historical fiction about her but they hadn't so it was like manna from heaven for me. She was termed an ungentlemanly woman because she was a very strong woman. She was very determined to do what she wanted to do, but at quite a lot of cost, in fact. But let's go back to her childhood. I mean, she was, she, she was brought up in Tipperary before they had to move back to the UK. And she came from a very privileged family and was sort of accidentally educated with her brothers. 
Yes. Tell us more about that. Yes, her, her mother was very aware of their, um, their noble connections and inadvertently left Aileen to be educated by the tutor that was, was educating her older brothers. And her mother didn't realize what she was doing there because it gave Aileen a much more advanced education than, than other girls of her age and class would have received. You know, mm. back in the day, girls <laughs> would have received a, a very basic education and thereafter the, a governess would have taught them how to play a bit of music and maybe a little bit, a few languages that might be useful and uh, needlepoint and, you know, how to run a good, a good house. And Aileen learnt a lot more. And aside from being educated beyond what what most girls of her of her age and class would have been educated, she also had an innate love for animals. Mm-hmm. And she decided at a very young age that she wanted to work with animals. And she wanted to be a jockey first, which so she hardly <laughs> have been condoned. <laughs> at six, she wanted to be a jockey, and by ten, she realised when she was eavesdropping in the stables with a farrier and the groom that there was such a thing as a veterinary surgeon. Mm. And the, the interesting thing was it, it was at a time where veterinary surgeon, surgery was becoming an, a more professional professional. It was, it, um, it was becoming advanced. The uh, Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons had been established in London and things were becoming official. Mm-hmm. And the farriers, a lot of farriers were becoming uh, veterinary surgeons at that point. But when she discovered what a veterinary surgeon did, she decided, that's it. That's what I want to do. She'd inherited her sort of healing because she was a healer as well mm. I mean there are several instances in the book where she's helped certain animal animals uh, uh, sort of against the farmers wishes to yeah. a certain extent and the animals have recovered but she inherited that healing um, skill I suppose from her grandmother who wrote books yes um, Lady Mary Cust so that was her uh, her paternal uh, grandmother was was also a woman ahead of her time and she had written a book about taking care of cats she wrote she did some research on chameleons i mean Good, what was that in, in about? england yeah. okay and she was the first english woman to uh, import a saint bernard dog so, <laughs> and she had dalmatians which ran along with her carriage and aileen admired her and uh, in fact inherited a case of instruments which um, Lady Mary Cust carried with her in the carriage to take care of her horses. So there, there was a connection there. But it wasn't plain sailing because in terms of wanting to become a veterinary surgeon, she alienated her family because her mother was woman of the bedchamber for Queen Victoria. Yes. Um, so all of this was sort of very much not allowed you know no. women weren't to be as you said before unsexed no, <laughs> in Queen Victoria's words yeah so that must have been very difficult I mean her father died quite suddenly and then um, there was a, a, an appointed guardian and that family um, the Wadrington family they were absolutely wonderful to her because her guardian supported her the the Widdringtons were an incredible family. They 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 became her support, mm. and they they remained her support. And you know there were so many amazing things. As I began the research on the book, there were so many amazing things that I discovered, including the fact that Aileen's best friend was Dorothy Widdrington, who became Dorothy Gray, who was the first wife of Sir Edward Gray, who was the British Foreign Secretary when Britain entered the First World War. In fact, he was the longest-standing British 
British Foreign Secretary. And Dorothy was his wife. And this was Aileen's best friend. Mm-hmm. So they, they were just, I mean, honestly, Wonderful connections. The connections mm. were just, and as I said, it was remarkable to me that nobody else had realized how rich the story was. There are some wonderful characters there. And obviously, I, I think you say yourself in, in your author's notes about um, historical fiction is, is sort of reading between the lines. And you've read between the lines with such skill. And all of these characters come to life. I mean, I loved Willie Byrne, and I'm not saying any more about him because <laughs> you've got to read the book. But I, it, what, what I found quite interesting was that Britain was actually very far behind in terms of opening up opportunities for women in veterinary science. And then, of course, what also happened, which was that she, I mean, she got to veterinary college, but that was with great difficulty and not receiving her diploma once she had passed her exams with flying colours. I mean, aside from her family, her mother and her oldest brother not wanting her to Mm. to practice, they, they were ashamed of her. It was shameful to them that she would be ambitious and she would want to work with beasts. I mean, that was just horrific. And the difficulty was that she wasn't, although she had an inheritance from her father, she didn't have access to it because her father, her brother looked after it. And of course, he didn't want her to be educated. Mm-hmm. So she was beholden to them until, and I won't tell you what happens because you need to You've read, the, to book read until the book she, <laughs> until she, some, some money was freed up. And then when she got to college, the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons, it was the first time a woman had arrived. The, first of all, she... She enrolled under a different name because she didn't want to embarrass her family. But then the professional body stood in her way, which meant that she she was still not able to qualify. And how, I, I mean, it took 22 years, in fact, for her to get her diploma. But how ironical is this, that in 2020, which is the centenary... No, this year is the centenary of of Aileen getting her diploma. Mm. But in 2020, the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons was voted by Great Place to Work as one of the top five medical organizations for women to work in. Isn't that a lovely note? (laughs) How things have changed. Penny, thank you so much. The book is The Invincible Miscast. It's published by Source Books and it's available in all good bookstores locally. Thank you, you. It's been lovely being here. Blinds me with love. I look at you and suddenly something in your eyes I see soon begins bewitching. Skies. It's that old devil moon in your eyes You and your glance makes this romance too hard to handle Stars in the night blazing their light Can't hold a candle to your razzle-dazzle
me flying high and wide on a magic carpet ride full of butterflies inside. Wanna cry, wanna croon, wanna laugh like a loon. That's that old devil moon in your eyes. Just when I think I'm free as a dove, oh devil moon, deep in your eyes blinds me with love. Oh devil moon, deep in your eyes blinds me with love. Old Devil Moon by Louise Howlett to add to our batch of moon-themed tunes for the month. Howlett, moon, get it? If you love books, your dial is in exactly the right place at the right time. You're tuned into Book Choice on Fine Music Radio, sponsored by Exclusive Books, and we still have tons of book ideas to share with you. Twangy Kalula is up next with two reviews of two current non-fiction titles. The first is Hunting the Dragon, which is the story behind the world's most radical leadership system by Ian Buchan. Okay, that sounds interesting. What do you think, Twanji? Leadership books are always touch and go for me. There are some dynamic leaders who have a story to tell and others who write books to hit the motivational speaking circuit and give companies flawed advice about giving their sales some va-va-voom. When I received a copy of Hunting the Dragon by Ian Buchan, I expected the latter. The cover boldly claims that this book is the story of behind the world's most radical leadership system. These types of claims are usually my first red flag. So imagine my surprise when I started reading the book and couldn't put it down. Ian Bakken is a cowboy in the corporate space. A born entrepreneur, he realized very early on that he was not cut out for a 9-to-5 or working for a boss. After completing university, he rattles the cage at some large corporates before venturing out on his own. Bakken is a brash bull in a china store, but you can't help but love him as the story progresses. The book details his long list of business successes and failures, which eventually lead him to create a family business called The Unlimited. I am sure they've given you a call at some point. The Unlimited is a telesales company that has been at the forefront of using his sales approach, which he calls Hunting the Dragon, to sell a range of financial services and products for almost 30 years. Through big bets and big ideas, The Unlimited has become a key player in the space and one of Durban's biggest business success stories. But it's not all glossy. Ian is honest about his health and psychological struggles along the way. Purpose is a big theme in the book, and Bakken is incredibly honest about how much he yearned to make an impact on the people he worked with and the country at large. The latter part of the book focuses on his philanthropy initiative, The Unlimited Child, which channels some of the company's profits into improving early childhood development centers around the country. Bakken says this initiative has impacted over one million children to date. 
The best part of this book is that the leadership advice and insights are weaved into his own story. In framing his method this way, it feels like he is showing us rather than telling us, which makes the writing a treat. He peels back the Unlimited's glossy veneer and shares some of the challenges that come with working with your children, trusting people at their word, and being hands-on. If you're looking for some business or career inspiration, I think it's a good read. I'm not a serious entrepreneur by any means, and it's not for everyone, but there were some useful takeaways for me. It also has all the salesy bits and the personal transformation stuff that fans of this genre love, including a mandatory trip to the South Pole. So if that's what you're into, you won't be disappointed. Hunting the Dragon by Ian Bakken was published by Mercury and retails for 328 Rand. You never disappoint, Twanji, keeping us up to date on the best non-fiction on the shelves right now. Uh, we're lucky, as this month we get a second review from you, Twanji. Uh, the next one is Blood and Silver, which is a true story of survival and a son's search for his family treasure by young Glazuski. At least that's what it says on the cover. Let's hear from Twanji what it's got on the inside. The late pioneering journalist Barbara Walters used to host these legendary specials at the end of each year where she would interview her most fascinating people of the year. I'm clearly no Barbara Walters, but if I were to put together my own list of fascinating people of 2022, Jan Glazewski would be one of them. I had the pleasure of meeting him last year, and let me tell you, he's just as magical in person as he is on the pages of his new book. Jan is the author of a memoir called Blood and Silver. Born to Polish immigrants who had fled Lviv, which is now part of Ukraine, Jan was born and raised in South Africa. His parents fled World War II Europe with little more than the clothing on their backs, eventually settling in Pal. Jan was born in 1953 with severe hemophilia, a blood disorder that prevents the blood from clotting. This condition was often fatal in those days. In fact, it took the life of his older brother at a very early age. In the book, Jan paints a beautiful image of what it was like to be part of an immigrant family in the 50s and 60s with all its quirks and peculiarities. Anyone with immigrant parents can relate to the complexities, which are compounded when you are also battling a life-threatening condition. Jan would go on to thrive despite the odds, eventually earning a law degree and becoming a pioneer in the marine and environmental law field. In fact, his legal and academic career led to him being involved in drafting the environmental clauses that appear in the South African Constitution. He was dealt a severe blow when at the start of the HIV-AIDS crisis, he discovered that he was in fact HIV positive. Given the amount of transfusions and clotting factor treatments required to beat hemophilia, many hemophiliacs went on to contract HIV at the time. In a memorable moving passage about the early days of living with HIV, Jan recalls how difficult and lonely it was to have HIV but not be part of the gay community as there was no support for people like him at the time. He was just surrounded by fear and stories of people dying. Unlike many of his fellow hemophiliacs, Jan beat the odds once again and has lived with HIV for decades. If you think that's where the story ends, wait for this. Years later, Jan's father makes him promise that he will head back to Alviv to find the family silver. Having grown up with tales about how his family buried the family silver in the forest near their home before they fled Alviv, Jan develops an obsession with this pursuit. Like many families at the time, Jan's father buried the family treasure in the hope that he would be able to return to Alviv one day. When he retires, Jan decides to head to the Ukraine with a hand-drawn map, which his father constructed, a cast of colorful characters and a metal detector. In search of the family silver, he heads on a wild adventure which is filled with a lot of misadventure. Imagine looking for cutlery and ornaments that were buried 70 years ago. 
If I tell you any more, I'm going to spoil the story. So go out and get your own copy of his book. Blood and Silver by Jan Klazewski was published by Tafelberg and retails for 320 rand. And let me play among the stars Let me see what spring is like on Jupiter and Mars In other words, hold my hand In other words Darling, kiss me Fill my heart with song And let me sing forevermore You are all I long for All I worship and adore In other words Please be true In other words I love you on Fine Music Radio, sponsored by Exclusive Books. That was Fly Me to the Moon. That's a favorite song of mine, and it's been recreated by many people over the years, as you know. But that version is by Andre Schwartz. A couple of weeks ago, Vanessa Levenstein hooked up with author Dennis Herson to chat about his new memoir called My 30-Minute Bar Mitzvah. They discussed this book, his life, and the reliability of memory, and how you cram a bar mitzvah into 30 minutes and a couple of hundred pages. We know that a bar mitzvah is a coming-of-age religious ceremony for a 13-year-old Jewish boy. It's also a time of bonding between a father and son. Yet what happens when there are other forces and conflicting ideologies at play? Joining us today via Zoom from Paris is the author of My 30-Minute Bar Mitzvah, a memoir by Dennis Herson. Welcome, Dennis. Well, hello. Good morning, Vanessa. Your bar mitzvah may have been only 30 minutes, but it's taken decades to write about why now? That's a very difficult question to answer, Vanessa. I can only tell you that it was a necessity. 
I can only tell you that I keep thinking of the quote by Kafka that one must break the inner sea of ice to get to the essential and that this is, for me, of all the books I've written, I think the one that hits most deeply to the root of what's happened to me in my life, Hmm. at least one part of my life. Yeah, and there was a lot of pain, which leads me to the next question. You write about turning 13 and the less than conventional gifts you received. And you talk about you weren't wrapping knowledge. Are you still unwrapping knowledge? I don't think the process ever stops. I think that one is inside oneself always the age of the trauma that one has been through, even if one goes through other things in one's life, even if one manages to work beyond that trauma, even though that was so many years ago and my life is so different now. The wheels keep turning and it's possible that there will be other gifts which I have not yet unwrapped. Okay, and to our listeners, we're not going to go into the trauma because we don't do spoilers on Book Choice. It's for you to discover, and you discover it in a very gentle way, readers. It's not a car crash read. It's a gentle, poignant read. Dennis, you write such vivid details, and there's also a blur about that time. And to put our listeners in context of what was happening, it was a time of great political upheaval in South Africa. It was a time of Sharpeville, in which, Dennis, your family was directly Affected, And you write, politics for me at that time meant nothing more than personal loss. How reliable do you think memory is? How reliable do you think your memory is? I think that memory is an artist and is continuously transforming the past to serve the present. So that it's possible that some of the memories that I've written down, many of the memories I've written down, do not correspond directly to what happened. But I have chosen to believe my memory because if one is constantly doubting, then one falls through the crack of uncertainty and it's very difficult to progress. So I have chosen to believe what my memory tells me now and written it as if it happened that way. And I can only suppose that there is some deep link between those two things, that is the memory and the actual occurrences, And that has allowed me to build this memoir as it is now. Reading it, it was very authentic. As a reader, one didn't doubt your memory. It was just interesting. The vividness, I think a beetle came into the room once. Am I right? Or there was just such senses. (laughs) I I felt as if I was there with you. Yes, I think that for anyone who's writing about memory, one of the tests that one can do on oneself uh, when reading back what one has written is to see how many of the senses are engaged because after all when one is actually living through the event all the senses are engaged the question then is if one is able to enter those senses then the memory becomes fuller and one can enter it more completely the memory one is writing about and widens one's perspective because the senses are alert to all kinds of things that the that 
that allow one to go into the adventure of memory. And which links to the creative process, because it is that detail, it is that the way you evoke senses that makes such such an absorbing read. So, yes, that does make sense. I want to talk about identity. You're born in the UK, raised in South Africa, you're living in France now, or have been for a long time. Is Judaism a link, not only between your past and present, but also the different countries in which you've lived? What I think is that as one goes from one country to another, one can become aware, or I have become aware, that it's not national identity that frames my sense of myself, but rather what it is that I can take with me. And what I can take with me is something of the order of bits of tradition that have been passed on to me, and a sense of the spiritual. And that uh, has come to me through Jewishness. And I treasure it, but I don't have a conventional way of celebrating it. Well, that makes perfect <laughs> sense for somebody who wrote about my 30-minute bar mitzvah. And as the readers will discover, it was not a conventional bar mitzvah at all. How is writing a bridge between the past and present? One can live through what has happened in the past in a different way in the present. And that is one of the miracles of writing. How one chooses to frame the narrative. Yes. One can frame the narrative differently in the present and live through what happened in the past differently as a result. Thank you, Dennis. My 30-minute bar mitzvah memoir by Dennis Herson. This book is poignant but not depressing. And much like the title, it's a short yet significant read. And that fascinating, thorough review wraps up our final show for January. Huge thanks, as always, to Rick and Dave for the great music, to Mawandi and Mzu and JP and the rest of the FMR team for helping us build our show, to all our readers and reviewers and authors and publishers for their exceptional work, and of course, thanks to Exclusive Books, our best friends, who sponsor the show with such passion. If you missed any of the titles or reviews in today's show, you can find the podcast of this show and all our other shows up on fmr.co.za, or of course, you can find it on the FMR app, which you should definitely download. We'll be back in two weeks from 12 to 1 p.m. again on the 7th of February with Book Choice, Publisher's Choice. Until then, we're playing out with It's Only a Paper Moon by Eve Boswell. You've been tuned into Book Choice with me, your host, Paige Nick, and until we meet again, I wish you happy reading. Sailing over a cardboard sea But it wouldn't be make-believe If you believed in me And it's only a canvas sky Hanging over a muslin tree But it wouldn't be make-believe If you believed in me Without your Barnum and Bailey world Just as phony as it can be But it wouldn't be make-believe If you 
was brought to you by Exclusive Books, celebrating getting more books to more people. The Exclusive Books recommend selection makes it easy. By curating 25 of the most talked about and trending books hitting the shelves, you can, with one glance, get a snapshot of everything hot in the world of books, locally and internationally. Exclusive Books also sell gifts, vouchers, stationery and more. Pop into your nearest Exclusive Books and feast your eyes. For more information or to purchase online, visit exclusivebooks.co.za. Yeah.